country that's at peace is not news. It's only when you look at data, when you tally up the number of people who are killed in wars, the number of wars that are going on, that you can appreciate what progress we've made. Professor Stephen Pinker, top academic and prolific author, one of the biggest and brightest minds we have, brought a message to the UN that despite the constant negative drumbeat of shock headlines, the facts tell a different story. I'm Matt Wells, and for this edition of our UN News podcast series, The Lid Is On, I've been talking to the Harvard psychologist and all-round enlightenment man about the story he thinks the world needs to know as he delivered the UN Economic and Social Council's first ever presidential lecture. ECOSOC, as we call it for short, is the place where the world meets to thrash out the big questions surrounding economic and social development. With the working title Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress in Creating the Future We Want, the professor says the UN where the 17 Sustainable Development Goals were universally agreed back in 2015, proof that a universal moral system prevails, he says, is the perfect place to deliver some data-driven good news. So really what I'm arguing for is what Hans Rosling calls factfulness, not optimism, just being aware of... Look at the metrics. Look at the metrics. So the UN can certainly uh, help gather those metrics... Uh, but also to promote goals that no particular nation can promote, such as ending uh, uh, extreme poverty worldwide. This is, that's an amazing, glorious, uh, uh, praiseworthy aspiration. It would have been inconceivable 100, 100 years ago to eliminate world poverty. They would have thought you were smoking something. The ECHOSOC president, Inga Ronda King, made it clear in the lecture hall that the upbeat message from Professor Pinker on the galvanising development goals and reality of the metrics should serve as a clarion call for everyone. Today's problems need global solutions. Only the United Nations, with its universal membership, allows everyone to bring their viewpoint and foster solutions. We need to renew trust in multilateralism and we need more, rather than less, collective action. I believe the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development gives us the blueprint for a better and sustainable future for all. The 2030 Agenda is an agenda of the people, by the people and for the people. It is therefore our collective responsibility to deliver on this agenda. Each of us can contribute to doing so. The President of the UN General Assembly for the year, Maria Fernanda Espinosa, was also at the lecture to lend her weight as leader of the closest thing we have to a world parliament to the unfashionable idea in some places that public intellectuals have an important role to play in today's debate over values and ideas. With its focus on cutting-edge research, the Economic and Social Council has long recognised that if we are to tackle the challenges we face and, in the spirit of Professor, uh, Professor Pinker's optimism, harness the opportunities to lie ahead it is then essential that we engage with leading academics. And especially ones like Professor Pinker, who are not only brilliant thinkers, but also brilliant communicators. If we want to make this organization more relevant to people out there, there then we need more people in here who can draw a crowd like this on a Monday morning. And we need more people who can challenge our assumptions with logic and figures to back it up. Well, just after the lecture, I sat down with Professor Pinker in our UN News studio to discuss metrics, progress, prosperity and more 
with the understanding that though progress has been made, there's still a long way to go. Just outline why you're here and what the messages that you brought with you. I was invited here to speak on uh, two of my books, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, and The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Uh, the subtitles tell a story, that is, that they both books present a view that most people are astonished to hear, namely that the world has made progress, first of all in reducing rates of violence, including war, but also in uh, other goals such as reducing poverty, increasing literacy, combating disease, combating uh, hunger. That does sound a bit counterintuitive to many, doesn't it, that we're actually doing better now, I believe your, your main thesis is, better now than at any time in, in human history in terms of war and peace. Uh, indeed, that uh, it's a view of the world that you cannot appreciate through journalism, because as long as wars have not vanished from the face of the earth, which they have not, uh, you can fail to appreciate how many parts of the world are at peace now that were racked by war for decades. Think about it. Imagine what the world would look like uh, if there were 50 wars going on. Imagine what the world would look like if there were five world wars going on. If you read the papers, that, those worlds look exactly the same. You'd have no appreciation of the 45 countries that are at peace because a country that's at peace is not news. It's only when you look at data, when you tally up the number of people who are killed in wars, the number of wars that are going on, that you can appreciate what progress we've made. I mean, obviously, your sceptical journalists will look at places like Syria, Yemen, grinding civil wars that, uh, you know, that seem to produce a tide of misery that uh, obviously would seem to be counterintuitive uh, versus the argument that you're trying to make here. Well, I indeed, but that's the, that, that is how journalism can give you a distorted view of the world because by focusing only on the worst things that are happening, you could uh, completely miss out on all of the parts of the world that used to have wars that were as bad or worse as Syria and Yemen that no longer do. Uh, there was a war between Iran and Iraq that killed more than half a million people that people forget about. There were civil wars in Uganda and Angola and Mozambique and Nicaragua uh, and Peru uh, that, and, and Sri Lanka that people tend to forget about once they're over, uh, but that we have to keep in mind before we conclude that, the, that our current institutions are failing because uh, wars are breaking out. They are breaking out. More of them used to break out in the past. So in terms of institutions, how important has the UN been uh, since its inception? And how important do you think it still is? I mean, many people look at the UN now and see that it's an or say that it's a, an institution under threat, that the entire multilateral system is on the verge of collapse, if you believe the sort of more uh, alarmist yeah. journalism out there. It, un unquestionably under threat. Verge of collapse is probably uh, uh, an exaggeration, uh, but we've got to uh, work to, towards making sure that it doesn't isn't on the verge of collapse because the UN does deserve credit in um, a number of regards for the decline of war. One of them is simply um, implementing the the norm, the international regime, the understanding that war is not a legitimate uh, move in uh, relations between between nations, that except in self-defense or with the authorization of the Security Council, you can't just wage a war to rectify some injustice or to, to press some grievance and expect the, the world to go along with your conquest. That's a momentous change in human history. It used to be that war was the continuation of policy by other means, that might makes right, to the victor goes the, uh, goes the, the uh, spoils. Uh, if one country had a grievance against another, say an unpaid debt, they could 
could uh, invade it, uh, bite off a chunk of territory, and expect the rest of the world to acknowledge that conquest. That has changed as the result of the United Nations, and it, it has made a, a difference. It deserves some of the credit for the decline in um, interstate war. And for the fact that, that no country has gone out of existence uh, since the UN has been founded, at least no UN member state has gone out of existence, and very few borders have been changed by force. Um, that's a, 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 a huge change. Also, the United Nations peacekeeping missions, while they don't always keep the peace, they do more often than not by getting in between belligerents, by serving as kind of umpires, referees, uh, even just uh, uh, local police uh, equivalent in on the international stage, uh, on average, they have led to a reduction in, in uh, civil wars. And in terms of solidifying the, the status of member states, of national borders, I heard you say earlier in the lecture that you thought that, that, that the creation of you know, firm borders that are, that are upheld by international law, this is also an extremely key indicator of why we're heading in a in, a, in an optimistic direction. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a saying that good fences make good neighbors, and uh, there, there, there's some degree of uh, truth to that in, the, in terms of uh, in international fences, international borders. A lot of the world's borders are clearly irrational if you were to start with a clean And map. in dispute. And in dispute, but uh, very few have been changed by force. And um, the because two nations can always make some case that the border is unjust, that there's a some territory that has a preponderance of, a, of a, an ethnic minority in that country that belongs to some other country. Uh, you can go back to some treaty, to some war. Uh, since there are endless grounds for haggling over borders, and since border disputes lead to, to, to uh, wars, disputed territory, if you just have the arbitrary rule that however irrational and unjust the borders are, they're grandfathered in, we've got to live with them, uh, rights of minorities get respected uh, in the countries in which they find themselves, that leads to a world with fewer wars than if borders are constantly under dispute. Do you have concerns about the rise of rampant nationalism in some parts of the world and, and the growth in a number of strong men out there who are using bellicose rhetoric in order to ramp up the, the at least the threat of war? Uh, I, I am concerned, not least a particular uh, country with a large population in North America. I've been told that it's UN etiquette not to single out countries by name, so I won't single out that country, but it uh, has gotten a lot of attention. And yes, I am, uh, because many of the, uh, much of the rhetoric of nationalism, authoritarianism, populism uh, goes against a lot of the progress that I tried to document in Enlightenment now, such as the uh, legitimacy of global organizations in uh, uh, reducing the appeal of war, such as the uh, uh, ability of global understanding to combat global problems like climate change, like terrorism, like, like uh, pandemics, like cyber espionage. Uh, like the respect for individual well-being that are enshrined in democracies and that are off, always under threat from uh, charismatic populist leaders who will tend to press their own agenda uh, above the well-being of the uh, people in their country. Talking of human well-being, I'm, I heard you earlier cite a lot of statistics that show that we're also in a sort of golden age in terms of our our our, our well-being overall as a, well, as a species age. here. I mean. Some would say, well, you know, just look at the at the growth in inequality around the world. You know, even in very advanced democracies, um, isn't that a sort of major challenge that goes slightly against this notion that we really are all happier and and healthier than in previous generations gone by? Well, uh, no, for two reasons. One of them is that inequality, when it's measured uh, between countries, is actually decreasing. 
because poorer countries are getting richer faster than richer countries are getting richer. But within uh, countries, within countries, within rich countries, inequality is increasing. But that that has nothing to do with how people, uh, how, how happy people are. Because if uh, if uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett have a much much bigger house, that doesn't uh, that doesn't make me any worse off. Uh, what I argue for is that what we should concern ourselves with is poverty and with the well-being of uh, people who have less, not the gap between those who have more and, and have less. You could uh, destroy a lot of wealth and value. You could have epidemics. You can have world wars. You can have um, uh, violent revolutions that do reduce uh, inequality, but don't make anyone better off. And what we ought to do is make, make people better off. So in what ways can the UN further advance this rather optimistic uh, plane that humanity is on right now, if we're to believe your thesis? Well, as I say, it's not a matter of optimism. It's a matter of just being aware of facts that most people are unaware of. Most people think that, glo- that extreme poverty is increasing, contrary to, to reality. Most people believe that uh, war deaths are increasing, again, con- uh, contrary to reality. So really, what I'm arguing for is what Hans Rosling calls factfulness, not optimism, just being aware of... Look at the metrics. Look at the metrics. So the UN can certainly um, uh, help gather those metrics... Uh, but also to promote goals that no particular nation can promote, such as ending uh, uh, extreme poverty worldwide. This is, that's an amazing, glorious, uh, uh, praiseworthy aspiration. It would have been inconceivable 100, 100 years ago to eliminate world poverty. They would have thought you were smoking something. So the SDGs, and, the Sustainable Development Goals, they're not overambitious in your view, your scientific view. Well, uh, they're, whether, whether we're actually going to meet them, probably not, but, uh, but we can, we can certainly try. try. But it's certainly worth a try. It's not, not uh, romantic. It's not utopian. And just as a, as a moral value that the entire world agreed upon, uh, it is astonishing. Uh, people sometimes say that, that, that human cultures are so different. Human nations pursue their own interest. Uh, religions each have a different set of commandments. You could never get humanity to agree on a moral system. But in fact, not only can you, but we have. And it is amazing. The idea that everyone should have access to clean water, that everyone should get an education, that everyone should be relieved of poverty, everyone should live, live in safety. These are glorious aspirations. It's proof that there really is a universal moral system. Uh, I, I, I call it humanism. It goes by, by various names. Uh, and that not only can, can the world agree, has the world agreed, but the world can make progress toward achieving it. I think more should be made of uh, just how glorious, noble, thrilling, uh, wonderful this is. Sustainable Development Goals has a bit of a bureaucratic uh, uh, aroma ring. to it, ring to it. And uh, I think more should be done just to show what an extraordinary aspiration this is. But you think that the UN can appeal to your sort of man in the street, man or woman in the street in, I think the, the, UN in, might... in the developing world? And, and... Uh, well, I think in the, the, the UN has a problem in the developed world where there's a great deal of, of uh, cynicism and disillusionment, uh, partly self-inflicted. The UN, of course, like any institution, has its problems. It's got a human rights council with a lot of members that aren't so hot on human rights. A security it's, council that's often deadlocked? Uh, that, that's often deadlocked, that often seems more interested in, in preserving spheres of influence than in, than in uh, uh, solidifying world peace. Uh, you know, a lot that a lot of problems within within the UN. But then I think the UN should do more to uh, to improve its brand, to boast about what it has accomplished. The fact that, however bad things are now, they were worse before there was a UN. We haven't had a world war in. Um, uh, what is it now? Uh, Seventy-five years. Yeah. We're going to celebrate a major milestone next year. Uh, that was not a foregone conclusion. When I grew up, all the experts said for sure there's going to be World War Three, and it's going to be worse than World War Two because it'll be fought with nuclear weapons. World War Three hasn't happened. 
the rate of wars between countries has gone way down. Fewer people are killed in wars. Uh, this is uh, not completely due to the UN, but it's partly due to the UN. The UN should take credit for it, remind people of how bad things used to be, um, and, and remind people of what a glorious thing it is that we can even talk about something like end uh, extreme poverty worldwide. I mean, most people aren't even aware that the world has set itself this goal and has made huge progress toward meeting it. Stephen Picker, thanks very much indeed for coming in today. Thank you. Harvard psychologist, author, social historian, big picture thinker, and now big data cruncher, Stephen Pinker, who is here at UN headquarters in New York to deliver the inaugural presidential lecture at the Economic and Social Council. I'm Matt Wells, and you've been listening to our Lid Is On podcast from UN News. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more in-depth coverage of the people, issues and stories that define our time.